0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Our team are very busy at the moment. They're all setting up for the awards night in WA. They're running a gala for the Community Achievement Awards, which we're all very excited about. But we are a little bit behind on the schedule for the podcast. So we're just going to do a quick flashback to one of our amazing podcast guests, Victoria Pham. Victoria Pham is an Australian artist evolutionary biologist writer and composer she's currently undertaking a phd in biological anthropology at the university of cambridge st john's college so we enjoyed this many of you enjoy this and if you haven't heard it before you'll definitely enjoy it welcome to the inspirational australians podcast stories of inspiring achievements and community contribution Every week, we will celebrate an award program category winner or finalist. We hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know that Australia is in good hands. Together with our corporate partners and not-for-profit partners, Awards Australia showcase ordinary people from right across Australia doing extraordinary things. If you enjoy hearing the stories of our inspirational Australians, please subscribe rate us and review us, we'd really appreciate it. Our Inspirational Australian podcast guest today epitomises the words extraordinary and high achiever. She's an anthropologist, she's an artist and a composer, and has already travelled around many parts of the world with her work and study. Victoria Pham is talking with us all the way from Cambridge. Victoria, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff. It's such a pleasure to be on.
0: I'm super excited to be talking with you because I think you've really pushed the limits of what one human can achieve in such a short period of time. My mind wells in awe at what you've already achieved, and it's quite hard to know where to start, really, but we'll have a crack. You're currently undertaking a PhD at the University of Cambridge in biological anthropology. I'm struggling to say that let alone imagine the complexity of what you're studying. How did studying at Cambridge come about to start with? And can you tell us some of the exciting stuff you're doing in your PhD?
1: Sure. So leading up to coming to Cambridge, I was doing my undergraduate study in Sydney at the University of Sydney, where I was specialising in archaeology. And I was particularly interested in thinking about how people lived in the past, but specifically how they interacted with sound and how they use sound to develop different practices, like how we're speaking now, how they develop language or music. And that was kind of the pathway I was taking. Then when I realized I was interested in furthering that research, Cambridge came up as an option because my supervisor in Sydney, uh, Professor Roland Fletcher, happened to study here in Cambridge. So he suggested that I meet some people, some of his old colleagues, because they had a different approach to studying slightly more experimental and obscure things that I was interested in. So I eventually came over here in 2018. I met some of the professors and looked at some of the facilities, some of the labs and realized that this would be a really cool place to pursue my studies. And so I applied to see if it was possible. And I'm very, very grateful that they they let me in and they gave me a scholarship. So that's how I eventually came to Cambridge. And the reason why the title is so long and complicated, Biological Anthropology, was because because of the pathway of what I wanted to do and how odd it was. And it didn't fully fit into the scope of what was traditionally categorised as archaeology or anthropology. It was beginning to move more into evolutionary studies. Um, So over here, they call that particular branch of study where you're looking at evolution and primates and very slow development of different human behaviours. They happen to call it biological
0: anthropology. (laughs) So It's quite fascinating because normally we would think about artifacts, the pharaohs, you know, finding tombs, Tomb Raider, you know, all that type of stuff. What you're delving into is uh, quite different. What led you down that particular path? Because when, well, actually, this is quite a long story now, I'm thinking about
1: it. When I was seven, I told my mom that I wanted to be a musician because I had been taking piano lessons, and that was something my parents wanted me to do, and I happened to fall in love with it. Uh, and, but at the same time, I found the National Geographic in my <laughs> primary school library and got obsessed with reading about exactly what you're describing, tombs and travelling and fieldwork, and that happened to be the world of archaeology. So I dreamed of being able to somehow do both of them. At once Uh, and the University of Sydney was very welcoming and they allowed me to do a double degree that let me study classical music at their conservatorium while at the same time pursuing archaeological studies at their main campus. So I started to try and assimilate the two and that led me to looking at archaeoacoustics um, which is looking at sound practices and musical evolution through the realm of archaeology, which then led me to where I am now, which is furthering that study and looking at a very deeper understanding of communication systems in the natural world and in early human behaviour.
0: You can imagine that sound uh, forms the essence of communication. So it all makes sense. Not something that the average person would have thought about, as we said, but certainly makes a lot of sense and I can understand how you've connected your two passions together so that's um, that's terrific to know you talked a little bit about of course the evolution of signaling communication uh, in terms of what you're studying but is there something that's really excited you that you've found or that you've read or part of your studies that says to you this is the real deal this is the area that i want to particularly focus on in your phd
1: yeah, it's funny doing a PhD. I ended up being led down paths that I didn't imagine were possible. Uh, I suppose that's the joy of being able to dedicate three years purely to research. When I first started, I wanted to basically only look at human behaviour and look at that kind of signalling and look at how how different uh, in instruments, very ancient instruments were developed, how the brain was mapping and developing to allow us to speak in such complex and nuanced ways or express ourselves in a sonic way and then the more and more reading I did I realized well this could be expanded easily into other spheres of our natural world so I started looking at chimpanzee behavior seeing as they're our closest cousin and seeing how they do particular behaviors like throwing rocks against trees to signal to one another that they're in a certain location or they're going to move to the next location they do bizarre things like drumming on the side of large buttress tree roots in order to signal to each other long distance which is something that I actually didn't realised that animals had realised that that was a possibility for their signalling processes. And then to further this kind of rabbit hole I dug for myself, I started looking at plant life and thinking about how trees communicate to each other and how things that perhaps we feel were less connected to because they don't have a, a mammal form speak to another So I ended up looking at mushroom signaling, which was not at all my plan, but I realized that they actually vibrate and they do various forms of chemical signaling to also coordinate their movement as a community, which is quite fascinating. And So the whole PhD coming out of this obscure archaeoacoustic realm has turned into me thinking about how can we look at research as a way to listen more deeply to one another, firstly, but also more deeply to the natural environment. And if it gives us a better understanding how the natural environment is connected to one another through signalling processes and through sound, perhaps we could think of ways to grow alongside nature, to build alongside nature in a way that's more harmonious rather than destructive.
0: Yeah. Again, it's something else we don't often think about is how... Nature communicates with nature. Our species communicates trees, mushrooms, whatever it might be. You know, I guess we're a little bit obsessed with ourselves, aren't we, as a, a race or as humans, and maybe even obnoxiously consider that uh, we're the only creatures that really communicate properly. So it's quite fascinating, and I imagine that it would take a, a lot of research, a lot of work to get to the points that you're at and, of course, reading and uh, liaising with others in terms of what they've found as well. I wonder, for those that are listening who may be considering the big move to London or to the UK, what your thoughts and recommendations would be, what do you think about the UK and is it something that people should consider doing? I know this is a little bit off track,
1: Well, I would immediately say yes to anyone who's thinking of moving anywhere, actually, because it would be, how do I phrase this properly? For me, it was a very, very different experience, just moving anywhere and living anywhere. And I've learned something every single step of the way, like how to navigate basic things like buying your groceries in a different environment, going to the bank and setting up a bank account, those very kind of seemingly boring things. But I thought that that challenge actually helped me grow and learn how to be a little bit more independent and to how to operate with more agency. So I would encourage anyone if they're thinking of moving anywhere, even if it's as far as ways, the UK or Europe to, to definitely jump at that chance if you have the chance and the means to do so. One thing I would warn anyone, especially an Aussie who's thinking of coming over to the UK, is that it rains a lot here. I know that's a big stereotype <laughs> about the UK, but it really does constantly drizzle. So if that's something you're not particularly keen on, just keep that in mind <laughs> when you're in the UK. It really is grey most of the time. And that took me a while to to adjust to as well. And it also took me a while to adjust to the fact that in winter, you don't really have that much sunlight. So the sun will come up around nine in the morning and disappear around 3.30, which
0: was <laughs> a bit of a challenge when that goes
1: on for about three yeah. months.
0: Yeah, you hear quite a lot of people say that it can be a little depressing because you don't get the sun that we are used to in Australia.
1: Yes, there's something called seasonal affective disorder which comes around during the winter, which I think a lot of European and uh, people who live here normally who have grown up here are also affected by. So there are ways around it. So, you know, taking your vitamin D tablets and there are special lights you can buy in the UK that emulate Natural light in the morning. So they they help keep your body in that rhythm
0: and that okay. natural cycle. So how is COVID currently affecting the social and economic environment in the UK? Currently,
1: it's the UK has taken quite a, I suppose, liberal uh, approach to COVID in that if you, for example, test positive now, you don't know you no longer need to isolate. So okay. if they taken quite a drastic approach in comparison to a lot of the neighbouring countries around this area. But during the actual, the last two years where it was particularly uh, noticeable, I suppose COVID's effect on the UK is not dissimilar to many other countries in that it exposed a lot of the pre-existent inequalities that exist here in terms of healthcare, education and access. So that, I think that was a very sobering thing to, to witness, especially because when COVID was at its height in the UK, it happened to coincide with Brexit. So you could see all these interesting political tensions arising within the country itself, um, as well as within the country and its departure from the EU. So it was a very bizarre time (laughs) to be living here um, and witnessing and experiencing all of that at once.
0: Yeah. How did you cope, you know, being away from your family during lockdowns and so on? How did you go in the early stages?
1: It wasn't too bad. I was very lucky because I already had a lot of technology available to me. So in terms of contacting my mother, for example, who, who still lives in Sydney, we just made sure we stayed in contact every day, actually. And I've I continued that. So that's been the primary way that I've stayed in touch with my family. I do miss them dearly because it's yeah. I mean, it's completely different <laughs> to not physically see them, which I hope to do at some point this year. Um But I'm very thankful that technology was there because had this happened five years ago or almost 10 years ago, just the contact wouldn't have been a possibility. Now we have things like WhatsApp and apps that allow us to ring people internationally for free. So
0: yeah, I guess you were delving into your studies as well. All at the same time. (laughs) All at the same time, yeah. You've got a strong passion for the arts and music as well, as you mentioned a little earlier. And that's led to exhibitions, commissions, premieres. Whereabouts have they been? And what have been some of the the highlights so far? Well, I suppose I
1: would, uh, I feel like I've surpassed it as a a passion. (laughs) I think it would count uh, as just being an artist, which is kind of bizarre for me because I view them, I view being a scientist and being an artist as kind of a similar package, it's all in me and I don't really see the distinction between them. In many ways, I'm asking the same questions when I approach both uh, and just going about them in completely different ways. So for me, the biggest highlight was the first time I was able to combine my research techniques in archaeology with artistic expression and music expression, which was back in 2020 actually, (laughs) which was unfortunate because it was the year that COVID uh, took over the world. (laughs) But I was very fortunate that myself and my close collaborator, James Nguyen, who is another Australian artist, we got selected to present a research and artistic program as part of Bleed Festival, which was run by Arts House Melbourne and the Campbelltown Arts Centre. And that project entitled Resounding was this kind of big spectacle where we wrote new music for an ancient Vietnamese drum. We sampled the drum and created this kind of archive, almost scientific archive of sounds that actually members of the public now can go and access it and download all these sounds and create their own music from it. And it was the perfect balance of research-driven work where two of us who are both academically trained could research this single object, which was a 3,000-year-old Vietnamese drum, and create art out of it at an international level where we invited artists from Indonesia and Vietnam and across Australia to work with us and write music for this object. So that was a big highlight because it allowed me to combine the two in a way that was cohesive and for the public to access. But it was always also a highlight because working with those two galleries changed my practice because I'd never worked with such a tight group of curators before that so quickly understood how to flexibly change presentations to the audience that were no longer physical because of COVID arising as a challenge. So they immediately changed everything about how the gallery was run to put everything online and to think deeply about how we can get as many people access to these free artistic exhibitions and contemporary art through an online means so that was
0: particularly inspiring for me working with that team of curators sounds amazing and some of your exhibitions have featured across multiple countries haven't they yes so how did that come about how did it transpose that you actually then were able to travel your works
1: well a couple of times it's happened because a particular curator or particular art director happened to show up to the opening of a gallery in Australia and they saw my work or some of my colleagues works often because I work collaboratively and then they were interested in our practices got to meet us and invited us to show work uh, in various places overseas like the UK or in France or the United States in other options so this is less interesting <laughs> because it involves just a lot of emailing and a lot of applying for open calls of artistic um, exhibitions or showcasing your work, the kind of perhaps old fashioned way of sending your portfolio to a gallery or to a curator and them having a look at your work and perhaps suggesting that they'd like to show it at their gallery at some case, uh, in some place. So that is also another avenue of anyone's thinking about how to share your work, just getting down and writing to a lot of people, that proved to be really helpful for me, especially when I'm moving to a new place and I don't know anyone, that was main, the main option.
0: Well, I think it's important that people understand that life isn't always as simple as, well, it just all happens, we have to make it happen. You know, we have to work hard. We Sometimes we have to take opportunities and sometimes we have to make opportunities. It works both ways. And I love the saying that funny how the harder I work, the luckier I get. So you make your own luck in life. So I think it's good for people to understand that you've been so proactive about making things happen, which is brilliant. You also somehow find time to host and produce your own podcast. And what's that called? And can you tell us about it? Yes. So
1: the podcast is called Declassified. It's called so because in 2020, myself and a couple of my friends when we were studying back at the Conservatorium together um, were talking about the classical music industry and thinking about whether or not because of COVID and because of the upheaval that COVID caused, it would be time for the industry to rethink some of its practices. And classical music, at least for me, I saw a lot of challenges because it's often painted as this kind of cultural heritage art form which is fine because I quite like listening to music from the Baroque period and before then. However, it involves the training of so many hundreds of living, performing artists to make it happen who also are interested in furthering that art form by producing new works and working with local artists. And in many institutions, there's less scope for that kind of new making of music in the classical sense. Um, So the podcast is called Declassified because I wanted to make some sort of resource for anyone who is interested in being active in the classical music industry or changing the way it's represented or run to listen to other people who have opinions about that people who have changed classical music in their respective fields, people who have started up their own conservatoriums or anyone like a composer Carl Vine or um, various speakers from the ABC Classic FM who very kindly volunteered to be on the podcast to talk about how they think that this particular part of the industry could change over time. So it's a collection of um, speakers who are talking about the classical music industry, particularly in Australia and how it can evolve.
0: So is that sacrilege, according to some?
1: Yes, (laughs) I think so. I think a lot of people want it to to stay this pedestal of um, pure, beautiful music, which in many ways it is. But I think there could be some space for some particularly new Australian music to be played and heard
0: in those concert halls. I imagine you've got some good uptake as well.
1: Yes, actually, I was I was actually surprised because I thought it's such a niche topic. I don't think many people beyond uh, my small circle of <laughs> people who had trained in classical music would be interested. And then suddenly there had thousands of listeners from America and Europe and the UK. So I didn't expect it to have that much of an impact. So I'm, I'm glad uh, if it's helped anyone feel less alone or feel like they could be more active in that space.
0: So where do people find Declassify?
1: Uh, You can find it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and you can find it on YouTube.
0: So those are the three channels that it's um, streamed onto. Awesome. Well, it sounds absolutely brilliant. So I hope it continues to go well for you. How long has it been running now?
1: Uh, Two years, yes.
0: And how long, how often do you...
1: Oh, how often it happens? About once a month, I would say. And I've divided it into two seasons, and the second season is just about to end.
0: Cool. Stay tuned for season three.
1: Yes. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Do you see yourself ever returning to Australia or is Europe home now? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) Yes, I
1: would see myself returning to Sydney. I think Sydney will always be my home because my family's there um, and my partner's family's there. And I miss the sun, (laughs) particularly in winter over here in Europe. So I think in the long term, yes, Australia will always be home.
0: Well, I think your partner's family were pleased, as well as your family, to hear that you are planning to come home at some stage. So we're very happy to know that. Your art has been performed and it's been exhibited and commissioned across Australia, the States, the UK, of course, and France. Can you tell us a little bit more in depth about some of your your other work? You've talked about some already. What inspires you to achieve certain things and so much? Well, similar to the, the scientific research side of me,
1: most of my artwork or my art practice is about sound. Um, that's probably because I trained first as a musician, um, but then I got interested in sound installation, sound performance, and seeing how in contemporary art yeah. or a lot of more, more recent art in the last 50 years has brought in other fields to its presentation. So I started thinking, oh, why can't I bring sound and speakers and sound experiences into a more artistic lens? So at the centre of my practice and of my research practice is sound. So most of my work or my body of work is about focusing on getting people to listen again more deeply to one another and creating these kind of large-scale installations where people can interact with objects that are making sound or creating a soundscape and a new sonic environment that people can immerse themselves in. So a lot of the work is about challenging people to listen um, more deeply or to listen out for something that's bizarre and alien and have an experience through this kind of Kind I'm cathartic but also grotesque experience through sound. <laughs> so it's about pushing, pushing what you can hear and how you can hear. So that's pretty much what drives me in terms of the art is I spend a lot of time listening and collecting sounds, kind of like one would collect um, postcards or postage stamps. I spend a lot of time with a microphone outside recording very, very quiet sounds or very, very loud sounds and I'm always doing that to build an archive. And most of the archive is what builds up the work through research and the work through artistic practice. You asked um, what also inspires me to work so much. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good question as well. I suppose I'm very curious about everything. And I've been fortunate enough for that not to fade so far. <laughs> we'll see how it keeps going. And that's what drives me to continually ask questions. And those questions turn into either an artwork or they turn into a research project and that's what pretty much keeps me going all the time just this endless curiosity to to hear more
0: what would you say it would be the most bizarre sound that you've been able to capture or one of the most difficult sounds that you've been able to capture or record
1: hmm. i have the same answer for both of them really And it's really, really quiet sounds that I find are really challenging to capture, especially when you're outside and there's incidental noise like people speaking or wind blowing. I always want to try and capture the sound of plants growing, (laughs) which is almost impossible because they're so slow in the way that they move, the way that they evolve uh, through the dirt. So I found ways to do that. and You need a specific kind of electronic node. You can stick it into the dirt and it will pick up vibrations, which are then translated into sound. So that's proven to be both difficult, but also it's produced a surprisingly loud sound when you listen to it through speakers. It's almost like the plants are speaking. So that's been both bizarre and difficult.
0: Is that over a period of time that that yes, recorded? And what period of time would it take to capture that, um, that sound?
1: It's only about an hour, actually. Really? So Yeah, so it's not too bad, especially in spring when the plants are sprouting and they begin to move with the movement of the sun. You can capture that movement in a couple of hours if you have a time-lapse camera. It's a similar type of technique when you're recording the sound.
0: So they're chatty little flora. They are
1: very chatty, especially when they're trying to get to the sun.
0: Well, yes, very true. So only during certain times of the day, clearly in the UK or certain seasons when the sun's out according to what you said earlier. But in all seriousness, it's absolutely fascinating to be able to do what you do and to put some perspective to it as well. So congratulations. you have featured as a lead artist in several festivals, including Vivid Bleed and Tina, and you're soon to be at Antidote 2022. Can you tell us about... I guess your musical interests, and you started in piano, as you said. So, what have you been doing in some of these festivals? Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yes. So, quite a number of these festivals meant that I had to write some kind of music. I started out first, as you mentioned, in piano, and then I moved on to being interested in writing music, so composing, and that's eventually what I uh, studied at the Sydney Conservatorium was composition, and in that particular course. You had uh, more traditional composition and that you were working directly with musicians who were studying their instrument and working with them to create new works. Um, but there was another smaller component to the course that involved learning how to write electronic music and learning how to use software and sound recording things. And I sort of slipped into, <laughs> slipped into that world, which was more connected with the sound art and experimental installation making that I mentioned earlier. So in these festivals, I was writing music except it was electronic and it was the beginnings particularly vivid when i was still an undergraduate when that first started happening vivid was a space where i could try out these ideas and the public would come and and interact with the works at the time i was working with a fellow composer named james hazel and we had created this kind of small installation with a keyboard and it was particularly aimed at children. Um, so children would come and play the keyboard and the keyboard would then activate all this cutlery that was swaying back and forth above jars and then playing this bizarre percussive electronic instrument. So <laughs> most of the installations from these festivals started from that point where the two of us, or by myself, we were asked to create these kind of small interactive participatory music installations where people could kind of make their own music and make their own sound work as part of our structures.
0: I was going to say it would be very exciting for young people because it is interactive and very visual. When I was very young and my mother wanted to me to learn the piano, that would have been a good way to motivate me to continue to do it.
1: Oh, yeah, that's true. I, that actually never occurred to me that perhaps one of those kids would go, I would love to play the keyboard
0: now. Yeah, well you know just for people who are less motivated to in music and a tone deaf probably it could have been an enticer because you're actually achieving more than notes you're seeing visually things happen because you're uh, because of what you're doing with your fingers and that's very crudely put but yeah you know maybe it's, you can turn that into some sort of training program or uh, educational Tool. there you go. Just uh, I'd like 10% of that commission for the millions you sure. guard. Or you may just say, oh, that's weird. So let's see, not even go there. So on that note, probably being the latter, we'll move on quickly. Uh, <laughs> but it is fascinating because you, you continue to use your passion for sound through your studies in both areas to uh, be combined in what it is you do. I think that's absolutely fabulous. So you really are passionate about sound communications, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I feel
1: like that's the centre of everything.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, how do you find to fit everything in? But it's probably because of that passion that combines everything in your life.
1: That would be the main, I suppose, motivator. Actually, no, not motivator. I actually don't like using that word. So the main driver. I have to actually admit that I I do set some pretty hard limits on my time, which has helped, as you say, fit everything in. For example, I don't work after dinner ever, and I don't work on Sundays. So there are some hard restrictions that I put on myself because I notice that if suddenly I have a wash of time where I could do anything, I feel like I don't actually finish things. So whereas if I set a deadline for myself where I don't work, after 6pm yep. um, every day. I just know that I have a set amount of hours where the work can be done and should be done. So that allows me to just get through the things I need to do um,
0: without it bleeding into the rest of my life. Good advice and also protects the work-life balance. It gives you, a, you know, I guess, a definition of where that starts and finishes as well. When I get home from work, whatever time that might be, I go straight to the bedroom, put my trackies on and that, or, or change into whatever it is I'm going to do. And for me, there's a signal for me to switch off. It doesn't happen. I can't I find it hard to switch off, but it is the plan. And I think you need to have a plan that initiates your work-life balance in, in whatever capacity that is, or however you structure that. I think it's really important. You're a semi-finalist in the Young Achiever Awards back in 2018 for the Coffee Club Arts Award, and people can understand why that would have been. You know, you are extraordinary and you do everything with 100% passion. And that's what we love about the awards and people like yourself. And at 22, you became a finalist the following year in uh, the 2019 Western Sydney University Academic Achievement Award, and for good reason just happened that you came up against Anosh, who went on to win the overall Young Achiever of the Year. So I should say that you were so highly regarded by the panel, and sometimes it just happens that way, that you come up against someone whose academic achievements were massive Mm -hmm. and have continued on I had the good fortune to chat with Anosh on the podcast as well. Both of you are extraordinary in your achievements. Did being nominated and becoming an award finalist help you personally and your career, do you think?
1: Yes, in in both senses and for a very similar reason. When I was around that age, Uh, I was still kind of figuring out whether or not what I wanted to pursue was even remotely possible, that I wanted to balance art and science in this kind of bizarre interdisciplinary way because most people I met were kind of sceptical as to whether or not that was possible or even something you could sustain over a long period of time. And because for some reason I managed to, very luckily and I feel very grateful, to have been nominated for two categories, the first one In art and the other one in academic achievement, which was more of my scientific research world, I think that affirmed for me that it was possible to be able to balance these two seemingly distinct aspects of my life together and to pursue it as a career. And I think for a lot of people who didn't know me very well or knew me kind of just in passing, that also gave them confidence that I wasn't completely nuts. In wanting to do both, that it was possible, and that you could you could dedicate your passion towards two things that
0: join together in the end. Well, you've proven that uh, beautifully. I think at the time you became a finalist, you had a Bachelor of Music Studies in Composition and a Bachelor of Arts, Archaeological Art History, as you have alluded. Can you tell us some of the highlights? Now you've travelled. With your research and your studies. Can you tell us some of the highlights during those early years of study?
1: Yes uh, so the Department of Archaeology at the University of Sydney was very keen on a lot of their students gathering some sort of fieldwork experience because that's one part of being an archaeologist is training for it theoretically but at the end of the day you need to be able to go out there collect the data and, and particularly remote areas and learn how to to survive in those areas or cope if you're not used to it. So the big highlight was in 2017, I got chosen to go to Mongolia on my first ever international archaeological dig, which was amazing. But I'd never been camping before at that point. And suddenly I was in this extremely remote remote area in Mongolia with a tiny tent, which now I realize looking back is was way too small. (laughs) A tiny tent with no electricity, no uh, cell phone connection, uh, no running water, no hot water. And I loved it. But that was like the big change of realising the reality of what it meant to be that kind of scientific researcher, the amount of physical fitness I needed, which I think I underestimated before I went out there, having some sort of paramedic wilderness training, which fortunately the team, which was run by an American director, Julia, she provided that kind of training for everyone who signed up for that field work trip. And then just, just realising how much physical fitness is required to be a scientist surprised me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, that's fascinating. When we see archaeology on TV, they all look, you know, perfectly groomed and well shaven. Uh, so you'd never, and, and the makeup is perfect uh, on the movie. So you'd never actually really consider the physical attributes that you need to maintain to actually be involved in the research and the dig and all that type of stuff. But also the little things like, not being able to have a spa or a bath or a hot shower i mean it's not for me but hey uh, i think which makes it even the more special for those who are committed in that in that regard it would be a very slow process in many archaeological research trips too
1: yes yeah, especially the first week is basically figuring out where are we going to dig <laughs> and it's it's quite methodical actually but it takes a while because once you start that process you don't want to make a mistake it takes so long to undo it and then start again
0: yeah absolutely fascinating what do you do in your spare time do you have any i mean after six and on sundays
1: <laughs> yes um well if it's light outside and not raining <laughs> i quite enjoy going on quite long walks that probably sounds a little bit like cliche but i really do like going on long walks it gets me in touch with the environment so i'm not sitting at the computer all the time Uh, and over here now that it's spring there are a lot of birds and small animals that are hatching and growing so it's quite a nice time to be out in terms of any other things i do in my spare time i quite like board games so i'll spend most of my time after dinner playing board games or watching movies with my
0: partner what type of movies do you like Ooh,
1: i quite like fantasy i'm a big fan of lord of the rings So if there's any opportunity
0: to rewatch those films, I'll do that. (laughs) Perfect. Well, have you uh, had much chance to travel? I know COVID would have impacted, but have you had much chance to travel around Europe whilst since you've been in the UK?
1: Um, It's been mainly little bits and pieces around the UK, just because that's a little bit easier. Um, But recently, in the last two months, they've relaxed a little bit how to get in and out of Europe especially now that Brexit has occurred. Um, So I've managed to go to France because that's the easiest way. You can just take a train from London to Paris. So it's been nice to to visit some old friends in Paris and see some colleagues.
0: Being from Australia, you know only too well that bits and pieces, like just travelling across to France, is beyond our understanding if you haven't travelled to Europe on holidays or whatever it is. Uh, when you have to fly four hours to go to Perth or Darwin from Melbourne or Sydney. So, yeah, yeah it's just to travel by train across to France. sounds a very uh, exciting, but we've got friends who live in the UK and they're here, there and everywhere all the time, probably prior COVID and Brexit. But, uh, yeah, at least, well, hopefully you'll be able to get more opportunity to do that over the coming time.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it does surprise me too every time I think about how
0: close everything is over yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> how long do you have left on your studies?
1: I'm exactly halfway through, so I have another 18 months left
0: Yes. Okay. So, um, how do you stay course. motivated to continue that level of excellence?
1: I think I mentioned this before that I don't like the word motivated, so I should
0: probably explain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's why deliberately? I I think- no, not really.
1: <laughs> well, I should probably explain why. I think it's. I actually get asked that relatively regularly, and I never really know how to respond. And I realised after seeing your question and having a proper think about it, finally, <laughs> which was probably overdue, was that I don't think of it as being motivated because being motivated sounds like it's something i need to i need to acquire the motivation in order to do something so i have a pretty boring response to this which is rather than motivation i think of it as discipline because then i don't have to push myself in order to start something if i have the habit in place of doing the work from this to this time. And I'm quite flexible with that schedule in terms of what happens when. Um, But if I know that I'm gonna do this kind of work today and then tomorrow I'll do this other kind of work and it all feeds into some sort of connection with whatever result I want at the end, whether that's a research paper or some sort of presentation for the public, then I have the time set aside every weekly to, to achieve those things without having to push myself to be motivated. I just know that I have the discipline of having some sort of routine when that happens.
0: I think that's a good answer. In fact, I think people who coped best with COVID or any change are those that were disciplined about their process. In other words, working from home, they didn't change their process, their daily routine, Uh, and for me, I found it quite easy and I find it easy to work from home because I follow exactly the same routine as I would if I was heading toward work. I get up at the same time, follow the same routine that I would get ready for work and start work in the same, might be a little bit earlier because I don't have to travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and often my wife would get home from the office when we're not in lockdown here in Australia. And I would think, oh, wow, she's home early. But I look at the, my, at the time and I think, oh, my goodness, it's 6 o'clock. And I just don't realise. I, I just get into that disciplined, not motivated, <laughs> the disciplined routine or the process. So I think you're right, and that's a really good lesson for every one of our listeners, to be disciplined in your routine and part of your Your work-life balance is the discipline in finishing, you know, around a certain time each day Then you work hard knowing that you're going to finish at this particular time. So I like that a lot. It's really good advice. Thank you. What's something that we might not know about you?
1: I feel like I already exposed my obsession with with the Lord of the Rings, so I have to think of something else that we think. Um Oh, I quite like building things. I'm not very good at it at all, but I, I realized um, the other day that when you're doing research, it kind of never ends. The work kind of keeps going or you'll find another thing to edit or another thing to read. Uh, so in the meantime, it's just the satisfaction of being able to finish a task. So for example, I'm not very good at painting and I'm not very good at sculpting or anything like that. So I've been doing that recently because even if it's hideous, which most of the time it is, I managed to finish it.
0: That's good. And do you, do you follow a disciplined approach that has got to be done within a certain period of time or that doesn't work for for, for social <laughs> sure.
1: Not so much for <laughs> for the painting or the sculpting.
0: That's, that's fun. I mean, yes. we, I shouldn't say that because I know your work and your passions are all fun and that's the beauty of why it works for you too and it's a secret, isn't it, for people to be happy in what they do, for their work and their passion to enjoy it. So yeah, I think that's um, it's good to be able to do something different, though, to have a, a release. Watch out! I, I thought we might get something more juicy than that, Victoria. But anyway, that, that's that's good. It's good to know. What, what's your current passion and what compels and drives you to achieve so much?
1: I suppose it kind of summarises everything we've been talking about. So The passion is I'm really, really interested in asking how do we listen and how can we listen more deeply and finding different solutions or procedures or processes in which I can try to unpack that. Uh, I'm also particularly interested in unpacking that as a group. Because, you know, I I can't achieve a lot of this by myself. This happens because I get to work in a lab with other scientists. I have lots of mentors and a lot of artistic collaborators. So getting to do that in some sort of cohesive community and asking one another questions about listening and sounds and how we hear is is currently my main passion.
0: In your research, in your studies, do you get to write many papers or present presentation opportunities? Yes,
1: so embedded in, in the postgraduate degree, which I think is the same in most places, you you have the expectation that you will present your research to the department or to uh, any relevant department during your time here. So I've been lucky enough to do it a few times. Um, there are also opportunities to, to lecture here and there, which is quite good, and it's good for building my speaking skills. In terms of writing papers, it's recommended that you write a few um, when you're studying. Although I should say to anyone who isn't studying a postgraduate degree, you can you can still write a paper. Like that's still also an option to you. You don't necessarily need to be a postgraduate student or someone with a PhD to publish. I know it seems that way from the outside sometimes,
0: but it's not at all. Good to know. So what's next for Victoria Fan? Well, hopefully finishing this PhD
1: <laughs> is uh, the, the key priority over the next two years. Later this year, I'll be coming back to Australia for the first time since the end of 2019, I think. So I'm very excited to see my family. Um, but I also have a few exhibitions in, in Melbourne that are opening up in September. So I'll be working towards those uh, while I'm in Australia later this
0: year. Well, I will have to come and uh, attend being in Melbourne. I have to So, please let me know when they're on and where and I'll have to come and have a look. Of course, I'll definitely invite you. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably have no idea what it is, but I'm going to be interested, uh, sincerely, and I can't wait.
1: Oh, wonderful. I look forward to seeing you in yeah. person there.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to a, a knitting exhibition, a crochet exhibition in July, because someone my wife knows is a, a very, very good one of Australia's best crocheters, evidently. So I'm sure if I can go to a crochet exhibition, yours will be super amazing. But don't tell my wife I said that about the crochet (laughs) exhibition. To all those crochets, it's awesome. I'm just not quite clear on how that turns into an exhibition. But in all seriousness, I think that will be amazing. And there's some extraordinary works in all forms of uh, art for uh, art styles. So I'm really looking forward to it. And please, please don't forget me. Of course not. Terrific. A little. What do you reckon the world needs more of right now? I feel like I'm hammering this in, but I feel like the world needs to listen more deeply
1: <laughs> um, to the natural world. Uh, especially I suppose I suppose it's quite topical in Australia considering what's happened to the East Coast in the last three years, um, from fires to, to rain, to listen to our earth more deeply. Uh, and to listen to one another more deeply if if COVID has taught us anything, um, perhaps we could pay a bit more attention to the people and the communities around us.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think all too often we listen to respond rather than listen to hear. Yes. So yeah. I think, yeah, I think you're you're right. Is there one piece of inspiring advice? That you'd like to leave with our listeners. I
1: suppose I've already mentioned collaborating as a way a, a way to work, um, so I won't touch on that again. So, following from the listening deeply, I suppose another thing to consider is to listen to oneself deeply. If anyone's interested in you know evolving or developing in a certain way, um, one thing I tend to do is sounds very cliche, but to keep a journal. Um, Less so, well, I have several. So, one that's dedicated to research, one that's dedicated to art practice, and then one that's just for me. And that's been a useful technique to just not keep me on track because I don't like to think of it that way, but just to keep me in touch with what's happening, my thought processes, and things like that. And also other people's thought processes. So, I make sure that I put it down somewhere and that I can close it and put it away because it stops me from overthinking in times where I shouldn't be working and it also keeps me uh, paying attention to the world around me and to the people and the communities around me, either my research team or or my various collaborators as well as myself. So I would, that's my one piece of advice is to find a way uh, to write down your thoughts
0: and keep that with you. I think that's great advice. How important is it to reflect back on it? Is it the writing and the thinking as you're writing, or is reflecting back really critical as well?
1: Both, yes. So because while I'm writing, I suppose you are reflecting on what's happened in the day or the week beforehand, particularly in the personal journal. But then, for example, if I'm going through research and I can't remember how I got to something or I can't remember what random tangent I had at 2am, being able to open that book and reflect on how I got to that point has also been very useful for me and uh, thinking about processes in which you think and work.
0: Yeah. Where can our listeners connect with you online?
1: So it occurs to me that I don't have the world's biggest online presence. I do have a website. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can send you the link to that. But my only kind of social media outlet is actually through Instagram. So you can follow me there, I suppose.
0: Follow Victoria Fame on Instagram.
1: Uh, Victoria, and then the letter A, and then V, FAM.
0: Victoria, A, V, FAM. What about LinkedIn?
1: Yeah, I don't actually, I used to have a LinkedIn. And then it occurred to me because of the way I was working and it was kind of awkwardly international and I was moving so much, particularly after my undergraduate degree, um, that it didn't help me as much as I I think if I had stayed in Australia longer, that would have been a more useful resource. But I I no longer have a LinkedIn.
0: Well, uh, Uh, Instagram it is then. And, of course, your uh, website. What's what's that? It's www.victoriaavfam.com. Same as Instagram. Fantastic. And this will be all in the show notes that Annette will put together as well. Highly recommend people. I had a look at your website. It's awesome and very contemporary. I think it's great. And if anybody... Would like to find out a, a bit more about Victoria and her works, then that's a good place to start. Victoria, it's been such a pleasure spending time with you today. You really are inspirational. I find what you're doing is fascinating. I find you extraordinary. You are an amazing achiever, a role model for so for everybody. I thank you so much for your time today i know it's early in the morning over in london or in cambridge so i do uh i do appreciate you making the time to uh to speak with us today
1: i was going to say the same thing to you thank you so much for making the time to speak to me uh, and i really appreciate the the interesting questions that you've prepared and and getting to speak with you this morning as well It's been really moving thank you
0: thank you so much if anyone would like. The links to today's chat with Victoria, head to awardsaustralia.com forward slash podcast. Until next week, stay safe and remember, be kind, and you will be the difference. Thank you, Victoria. I really appreciate your time. Uh, You're you're just really amazing. You know, just absolutely overwhelmed with your ability, the you're just a really wonderful human too. So congratulations and thank you.
1: No, thank you so much. You've been so kind to me. I didn't know what to say. you <laughs> have been oh, very, very kind.
0: Please uh, also make sure you nominate again when you get back. Oh, yes. Yeah, because I, I think what you're, in mind. <laughs> yeah, what, what you're doing is extraordinary and you're really paving the way. So good on you and well done.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.
0: And sorry about the initial hiccups with my lack of uh, technology experience.
1: Oh, not at all.
0: I mean, it happens when I'm recording the podcast too. Sometimes Zoom just crashes. (laughs) Well, yeah, uh, my laptop. I've got a microphone and then that didn't work last time and then this time it's just from my laptop uh, audio. Anyway, I'm just trying to work out how to get out of this. I can't get my mouse. And I couldn't find my mouse onto this other Screen, but anyway, I'll work it out. Thank you so much. You have a great day.
1: You have a lovely evening and say hello to Annette for me.
0: Yeah, I will. Take care. Thank you. See you, Victoria. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's interview as much as I have. We would love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you won't miss an episode. Join us each week as we talk with ordinary Australians achieving extraordinary things. Did you know that Awards Australia is a family-owned business that proudly makes a difference in the lives of those that make a difference for others? And we thank our corporate and not-for-profit partners for making our award programs possible. Do you know someone that's making a difference? Or maybe your business might like to sponsor an award? Contact us through our Instagram page, inspirational.australians, or head to our website, awardsaustralia.com would be great if you could share this episode with your network because who doesn't like a good news story and please rate and review us we would really love to hear your thoughts until next week stay safe and remember together we make a difference